Acts chapter 4, and we'll begin reading in verse 23. This is our portion for today, God's Word, and we're glad for it. Verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for another installment in this continued story we've looked at for weeks together here in this place. Lord, we ask that you'll do for us what you've done in the past, that is, open our eyes, our ears, to understand what you have said. And may we be faithful, and may you give us the strength to be obedient to what it means. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, we've reviewed... Over the past few weeks when we begin these messages, I think it's worth our time if it takes a moment or two. For those who may not have been with us these past few weeks, maybe this is the first time in a short time or first time in a long time, but the narrative that concludes here, what we just read, started back in chapter 3, and that was a familiar miracle. You may remember that from Sunday school as a child. Peter and John go up to the temple. They find a lame man. He asks for money. They say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give to thee. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And this man who was born crippled began to walk and leap and praise the Lord. There's even a song I remember singing in junior church that went along with the whole thing. That's where this story began. And as a result of the miracle, the crowd gathers, the crowd receives a sermon from Peter. Two things happen during the sermon. One, people believe and are saved. The other, the rulers who were responsible for Jesus' crucifixion and death weeks prior are infuriated. They arrest these men, hold them overnight, put together a hearing the next morning, and strictly warn them not to preach in the name of Jesus ever again. That's about all they could do because the crowd was behind them and they valued peace at that point more than what they would consider justice. So from last week, the warning is handed down 
and the disciples are let go free. We pick up in that narrative this morning with when they were released. So it's kind of like moving from one episode to another. But the whole thing, and it's a repetition of last week's theme, is boldness. And we talked about that, how boldness suggests a clear, daring statement, a clear enunciation of certain truths, so that there's no mistaking the meaning of what is said, almost a blunt, perhaps even defiant enunciation, arrests the attention of those listening, and this kind of boldness runs through the whole period of the Acts and into the epistles, as this is the way that the apostles would teach. Now, we talked last week about how it's easy enough to see it when it happens. Uh, You know boldness if you've just heard it. It might be a little tougher to describe, but you certainly know when you've been in the presence of bold speaking. We talked about how the crowds referred to what Jesus had done and said, this man speaks with authority and not as the scribes who are supposed to be the ones in charge. They said, we've never heard anyone speak like this. Well, these same men are hearing that type of thing again. They've identified these men as having been with Jesus. And what we're looking at today is where this type of boldness comes from. The story of this paragraph is really that these men demonstrated boldness. Then they were threatened. Don't do it again. And then they go home and pray that the Lord will give them more boldness to do it again. So it's easy enough to see that the, the passage, if you boil it down to its, uh, its most uh, lean reduction, God gives boldness and he gives it as a result of prayer. But there's, there's a lot more here for us to learn, so we're going to slow down a bit and we'll need to to make sure we get it all. It's simple to say that, hey, they went home, they prayed, they were given what they asked for. But let's look at it a piece at a time and go back to verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. So if we're asking the question, what was the reaction of the council's ban on their preaching and their formal warning? They did not flee the scene. They did not flee the country. They did not go into hiding. This wasn't the last we ever heard of them. They went back to their house or wherever they were all meeting. And if you want to imagine uh, the difference from one episode to the next, I don't know why, but sometimes I just think of it in those terms. Now, back before there were ever televisions and series and people gathered around those televisions in the afternoon to watch their show, uh, people read books or sequels. It was different. But let's think of it this way because this is kind of the way I grew up. You had to wait a whole week for the next episode, which is kind of what we're doing here. But I remember that some of the shows, I heard another pastor about the same age as me referring to this, and I thought, yeah, that's that's the way it was. Do you remember the freeze frames between the last scene where they just kind of pushed the pause button? And usually it was either, uh, you know, that colorfully decorated car leaping over a big mound into the air, and where are they going to land? All right, you know what I'm talking about without me saying it, right? Or two guys on a motorcycle, you know, chasing down some bad guys. Usually in that show, it ended on a happier note where they're, you know, having a party or something, and the frame freezes. 
You know when the frame freezes, it's over. Your half hour is flown out the window. You got to wait another week till see what happens next. Well, the freeze frame was you can leave. And then we pick up when they were released and they went home. So if you can remember back to the previous episode, that was a bad note. They were in a place with hostile witnesses. You know, the, the, they weren't treated fairly or kindly. They knew in no uncertain terms that the men who had killed their teacher were threatening to do the same, but without saying it. But they all know how that preaching ends. Now they're making their way to where those that are waiting on them have been. And they don't have cell phones to call from prison. I'm sure somebody was there and saw them arrested and they run home and tell them, hey, they've been arrested. So they're praying at home, wondering what will happen the next day. And you would assume that they all know what happens, the end of this type of preaching. But there must be a marked difference between a cold room full of men and hatred and a warm room full of family and friends. And that's where they go. And what they do is they report on what was said. We were there. This is what we heard. And they lay it all out. Now, not much time is spent there. When they were released, they went to their friends, reported what the chief priests and elders had said. And then look at verse 24. This is the reaction of the reaction of the disciples to the ruling When they heard the report, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and pause right there, the reaction to the news was that they immediately went to prayer with each other in this room, wherever they are. It doesn't give us any record or indication that they talked it out or tried to speculate as to what their next moves were. I'm sure they did, but what Luke tells us is that they prayed before they did anything else. Here's the first thing I think we ought to recognize. The way we pray has a lot to do with what we believe. And we're going to analyze this prayer here. We were analyzing sermons the last two weeks, right? Peter taught and we broke down the message as to what he said, tried to figure out what he was saying so we could understand and obey it. Now we're breaking down a prayer, try to understand, okay, how did they pray and What happened after they did? So when we do that, we're going to find out that the way we pray has a lot to do with what we believe. It shouldn't shock us. What we believe says a lot about how we behave as Christians, right? You you believe a little bit about the Bible, you probably behave a little bit like you know the Bible. And if you don't believe anything at all, you probably don't pray anything at all. They're directly proportional. The significance of our prayer is directly proportional to our faith and our belief in God. So let me give you our outline up front. We'll look at all three of these, but we're going to see these three in what we're going to read here having to do with their prayer. And when you're studying for a message, if your profession is preaching and teaching, you read a lot of different Commentaries, a lot of different people, scholars, professors work on 
the material. And you, if, if you read 10 books, you might find 10 different outlines on the same passage. It all says the same thing because if they're any good, they're, they're not changing what was written here. The story is what the story is, but the way you look at it can differ. I found this outline that I cannot improve on. Some of the time you just look, well, how am I going to make this mine and not somebody else's? I'm sorry, this guy's was way better than anything else I saw in any of the other books or what I thought. This is as crystal clear, I think, as you can make it. But here they are. And the question that prompts these three points is this. What did the disciples believe that not only informed but empowered their prayer? Question mark. Number one, that their God was not small. You'll see that in a second. Number two, that their God was not afraid. That's clear too. And number three, that their God was not surprised by what had taken place. So their God was not small. Their God was not afraid. Their God was not surprised. So let's look at number one. Our God is not small. We'll we'll put it in, in terms that we're all in this together. Look how they began their prayer. Sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. Now, right out of the gate, the term that they refer to God with, sovereign lords, the way it's translated in the ESV, that is the Greek word despotes, which we get a word despot from. I don't know how many times you've ever heard the word despot. We'll use tyrant or dictator usually before we get to the word despot. But it's not a positive term, is it? That's a bad guy with unchecked power who's probably uh, running roughshod over any and everything he possibly can. We would think of uh, some of these bad kings of Israel acting that way, or the kings of Assyria, or Babylon, or the Philistines, bad guys. Well, in Greek culture, that was not the way they took this term. This term was just a simple way of saying a ruler with unchallengeable power. Now, this is not the common word that most people use when they're directing their prayer to the Lord in the New Testament. But it almost fits if the previous scene was their leaving the council who made it clear, we have authority over you to stop you from teaching in the name of Jesus. They go home and they acknowledge the creator of the universe by referring to him as a despot. The despot, the one with unchallengeable authority, absolute authority. So it makes perfect sense why they would use that. It's making sure that they're talking to the God who the rulers in Jerusalem are certainly not. It's quite a vivid contrast. So before they make any of their requests, it's clear who they are talking to. And then they begin to fill their thoughts with what they know to be true of God's divine sovereignty. Look at it. The Lord who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time at all, and usually this type of thing I think comes not only with spiritual maturity but with physical maturity as well. But if you look at the created splendor, beauty, the, wonder, the wondrous work of the, of the natural world, if you look at that as a 
cosmic accident, then it's kind of a mysterious thing. You're intrigued by it. Maybe wonder fills your mind. How in the world did this come to be? But if you believe the first ten words of the Bible, then looking at all the natural world's created beauty really amounts to an act of worship. Because you can't do it without giving credit to the one who made it. So to bow to the one with unchallengeable authority and then to fill one's mind of all the things that that God has done in the created order is a wondrous place to start. When I was, the only other time I've taught through this was in a Sunday school class. This was years ago and it was in Virginia, but in putting this together, I'd come across something that I thought was a great way to illustrate the greatness of God's created work. And it had to do with some scientists who, with modern technology, had finally taken on the challenge of deciding, or determining rather, are there more grains of sand on the world's ocean beaches, floors, or are there more stars in the sky? And through many months' worth of work, they determined that there are far many more stars in our expanding universe than there are grains of sand, which is crazy for me. I, I enjoy spending as much time at the beach as I can. And it seems as if I bring enough of it back in the floorboards of the truck or the back of the van or wherever that it's just everywhere. And to think that there are more stars that are bigger than our sun to represent more than each grain of sand on the beach. But then these scientists decided to go a step further to try to help people wrap their mind around the magnitude of the number necessary to give an estimate as to how many stars. I won't even try to say it, but it's a bunch of zeros behind a one. They said, now there are more stars, but if you took all the grains of sand on the whole planet and you were to give one grain of sand one molecule of water, how much water would you need in molecules to account for all the grains of sand on planet Earth? Ten drops. That's not even a good sip, is it? So who are they referring to? The God of unchallengeable power who made everything we know of from a grand scale down to the microscopic. That's who they're talking to. And do you think it makes a difference when we pray, how we pray, what we pray when we're talking to a God like that? Absolutely. So prayer always begins here. No man ever prays unless his concept of God matches the God of the Bible and Genesis 1 1's a great place to start. A God that is bigger than everything. And then from John, a God who without his creative work, there would be nothing. So that's our God is not small. Next, our God is not afraid. Look at verse 25. After they've created, addressed this God who is powerful and who is big. They say, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So not only is this God making everything, but he's speaking to them in terms they can understand. 
David wrote this. They consider it prophetic and they consider it messianic. This refers to the Messiah, God's son. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves. Rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So you've got nations raging, people plotting, kings posturing, rulers assembling, and all of them are against God's Messiah, his anointed. Now, I'm going to turn here. If you'd like to, you may as well. This is Psalm 2, verbatim. Psalm 2 comes right after Psalm 1. And that's right after the book of Job. But you, you need to look at this. If we're going to say that our God is not afraid of what had taken place, this is the scripture they quote, and then they go on to say that this scripture's been fulfilled in our eyes. We've seen it happen this way. But if you're looking at Psalm chapter 2, it's the same. Why did the nations rage? It's Gentiles here in the book of Acts. The peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The idea of, of chopping away the ropes that, that tie the ship to the dock. What happens in verse 4? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's a done deal. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Only begotten son. John 3.16 Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You, that would be Jesus, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Here's the warning. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, S-O-N, lest he be angry. You perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So do these disciples think they have a fulfilled prophecy on their hands? Well, look at uh, the rest of what is said. And this we go to number three. Our God is not surprised. So obviously he's not afraid. Nor is he surprised. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. You could look through there. Why do the Gentiles raise? That's the Romans. Why the peoples plot in vain? That'd be the Jews. Kings of the earth set themselves. That'd be a representation by Herod. Rulers gathered together. That's a representation by Pilate or vice versa. But it's all there. And then look what he says. They're gathered, verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, it's tough when you come across that word in Scripture because what that means is we're involved in a lot less than we thought we were, including Herod, Pontius Pilate, 
all this council that's sitting there telling these men they can't preach anymore. Theologically, we could tinker on this, but it's really not complicated. Predestined means to choose beforehand. It's as, it's as basic of a definition as we can articulate, which means God planned for this. It has not caught him by surprise. Oh, no, they're going to kill my son and nail him to a cross. No, he knew that before they knew that. But then, from what we just read here, not only did God plan it, but they did it. They gathered together. They plotted in vain. They set themselves. They were raging by exercise of their own choice. They weren't robots. You say, okay, how can God plan it ahead of time and them not be robotic by doing it? It's a mystery. It's a tough one. It requires faith. That God has, before the foundation of the world, determined that you would be His, died for you in the fullness of time, but it's required that you repent. Follow him of your own choosing. What I find intriguing is that many of the times the toughest of passages have both the sovereignty of God, you've heard me say this so many times, and the responsibility of man at the same address. Same passage. And also God held them responsible for their chosen action. There will be punishment and retribution for not, as the psalm says, kissing the sun. Acknowledging his authority. Verse 29, here's the result. They've prayed. Now they are going to ask their request. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. Whose threats? The council's threats. And grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. In other words, Lord, don't let that get in the way of our carrying out your command that we be your witnesses. Verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus Christ. Three requests are mentioned here. It might be, I have the argument that it's one request, three different components. Either way, the three things to talk about. The first was that God would consider their threats. And we have absolutely no indication that they had said anything about uh, that those would prove to be empty threats or that those threats would be turned on their enemies' heads. Remember how fired up we got studying through Esther when we found out the gallows that Haman made were going to be the gallows on which he himself would hang as all of his plots against the Jews were turned around and dumped on his own head. And we said, this is great. This is not what these men are praying Basically, all they said was, would you bear in mind the events of this morning? It's another way of saying, we're going to let you worry about those threats. We're worried enough about them. We want you to worry about them. Second of all, they ask for boldness to continue their preaching. And that's the most evident. Undeterred, unafraid of the threats against them. 
Lord, let us keep going. I think that might be one of the, the, the best prayers to just keep in your pocket. You know, some of us write down verses of Scripture and we keep on hanging on to them or someone will put it in needlepoint and we hang it on the wall. But just to pray, Lord, may I continue. Because how many times do we feel like we want to quit? Um, Paul talking to Timothy. Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardships. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. That's one veteran preacher to a younger one in the NIV. Sometimes that's, that's about all we might have breath for. Lord, just keep me going. But continue to preach, undeterred and unafraid. Third, the request was that God stretch out His hand to heal, perform miracles, and in the name of Jesus. And again, I have no indication that this is a request for miracles of vengeance. Right? Now, if you've got three wishes, and you just left the company of some really bad guys who really want you dead too... It'd kind of be tempting, wouldn't it? Somebody said a, one of those goofy three wishes jokes. You know, there's about a million of them. Asked the young kid, his first wish was, I wish there's no such thing as math. And he didn't have any more wishes. <laughs> right? So, yeah, aren't you glad we don't have wishes? Three wishes every time we pray. We probably wouldn't have any more wishes. They tend to backfire on us. That's not what's going on here. It's not a request for miracles of vengeance, but miracles for mercy. You're stretching out your hand to heal, like the cripple guy who can now walk. This is interesting because it's not that far from Luke's gospel. In chapter 9, it's a long chapter, but Luke wrote Acts and Luke. And, and it's like got a bunch of verses and it's a wrong, long running series of events that happened over one night into the next day and that night was when Jesus took his inner ring Peter, James, and John to a remote location away from everyone and was transfigured before them. That, that's a whole plateful as to what that means. But they were able to see somewhat of him in his glorified being. And there were two others at the party, Moses and Elijah. And that's kind of interesting because the next day, a lot goes on, some miracles take place. And toward the evening, Jesus tells these men to go find them some accommodations in Samaria. You know, that doesn't really work good. He talked to a woman at a well in Samaria, but Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. So it's not surprising that word comes back that uh, access denied from the Samaritans, no room. What do these disciples say about that? Luke nine fifty four. and when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, what's interesting about their gathering the night before was that both Moses and Elijah had called down fire on their enemies. 
You remember it was with Moses, it was uh, the sons of Korah. And uh, earth opened up. It was, it was a bad deal. But then with Elijah, there was the 450 prophets of Baal. That, that was amazing. But then there was the band that were out to get him in hiding and called down fire on one group. And then another group came, called down fire on them. And then another group came and fell on their face. Please don't, don't do that. You know, it's kind of tough to be under the commander who says, all right, we just saw two groups get burned up. You go to. But these men had called down fire on their enemies. And if you're a good disciple, those are probably your Old Testament heroes. You know all about them like we may know about athletes. and How many goals they've scored and what games they did this and that and whatever else. Not that that is at all anywhere near level of importance going on here. But maybe they're a little full of themselves. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went to another village. No. That's not what I'm here for. And that wasn't the first rebuke they got that day. They'd come earlier that day and said, Hey, we found some people casting out demons in your name. We told them to stop. And he said, Why would you do that? If they're not against us, they're for us. And the demons were cast out in the name of Jesus, not in the name of any of the disciples. So it seems there's this backward to us way of looking at the way Jesus handled himself and especially his troubles and his dangers and really all that he ever was concerned about was continuing until his hour and any of the things that would get in the way of that mysteriously didn't get in the way of that but the only time we ever hear him praying for any type of a bailout it's with great drops of blood, and if there's any other way, but that's not important. What's important is your will be done, not mine. He was here to save, not to condemn. And it seems that his disciples are learning. They're here to save, not to condemn, and certainly not to waste their three wishes on comfortability. That's not at all what they did here. In response to their specific request, they were able to continue to speak the word of God with boldness through power from the Holy Spirit. God answered them. It's right there in verse 31. Look at it. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. We don't have a definition as to whether that was a shaking of their soul or a shaking of the ground. Maybe it was a lot better than either one of those. The place was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, they'd already been baptized in the Holy Spirit, so this is more Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. All right, what do we do with this? Last week, we tried to take the wasness of Acts chapter 4 and put it into the isness of a service here on the Lord's Day in Fuquay among brothers and sisters in Christ. If you want to boil this down, here's a summary statement of what happened. Before the early church asked to be found faithful in witness, after having been threatened to continue, they rehearsed back to God their understanding of His greatness, not only clarifying who He was, 
but humbling who they were. And if you want to boil down the guts of their, of their address before they ever got to the request, the request is simple. We understand what the request was. The request is help us keep going when we've been told to stop. They address the God who made, who spoke, and decided everything. And if we're going to pray and we're going to get what we need, not what we want necessarily, though God is gracious. He gives us a lot of what we want. But he died in order to give us what we need. And if we can remember that this is the God who made everything, this is the God who spoke this, told us what he expects of us. And this is the God who decided how it all turns out. And why in the world would we be afraid other than the natural fear that comes when our adrenaline spikes, when we're tempted to fight or flight, all those things that happen metabolically. He never told the disciples this would be easy, comfortable. All but John are going to give their lives for this gospel. They know how this ends. We went through that at the end of John. What happens to this guy? Jesus just told what happens to Peter. But the God who made the world, who spoke the scriptures and decided each one of our fate. If we want boldness to speak the truth of God's word, if we really want that, we've really got to pray for it and pray with conviction, believing that God not only can but will deliver what he's already promised to give us. That's the problem we come into. We want to pray for what we want. And then we're disappointed that it doesn't get answered. You pray what God wants, it'll always be answered. And if he doesn't do it through you, he'll do it through someone else. Why in the world would he come die on a cross to let all that go by the wayside? Here's another point we ought to remember. If we're praying to the God who made, spoke, and decided, we'll be surprised at how little we feel qualified to do what we didn't see the disciples do. They didn't even ask God to remove the difficulty. Their request was simply, Lord, help us do a better job doing the very thing that got us into trouble to start with. But they didn't say, Lord, ruin them all. They didn't sing the song, if the devil doesn't like it, he can sit on attack. At some points in the message, I think, all right, let's put one on all the shelves. That one's on the bottom. That's not what they prayed. Their conviction was that God was sovereign, all wise, governing the affairs of all men. And all they thought they needed to do was give their problem back to God. And if it persists, it's at his pleasure. And if not, it's at his pleasure. Their concern was for God's word to go out, Christ's name to be glorified, leaving what happens to them in the hands of the creator who sent them as witnesses. This is not the passage you'll hear taught in many churches who want to emphasize your best life now. No, your best life's in glory. Your worst one's now. 
especially if you preach this type of truth because the world hates it. And they might even demonstrate that to you. They might send you home early. But then again, if that happens, that will be because God planned it that way. You can't lose. So I thought to end this, I had read this before. I've used it a time or two. But I think this passage demonstrates it well. Biblical prayer is not so much to change the mind of God, but to change the mind of man. The first part of the prayer was a rehearsal of how good he is. The second part of the prayer where the request came in was just help us do what you called us to do. Prayer reveals more about God to us than it reveals to God about us. Our prayer isn't telling God anything he doesn't already know. And our prayer should be praying a lot of things that we should be reminded of. So again, what you pray, how you pray, has a lot to do with what you believe. And may God give us the grace to pray like these men prayed. And that we may be granted boldness. If we want Wake Chapel to matter in this town... If when we're gone and it's our kids that are here or our grandkids, we're going to be having to spend a lot of time asking the Lord for what he knows this church needs. And we're going to have to do a lot of praying, asking that he'll give us what we need to just do what he's already started and that we know he will finish. We've got a new year coming up. A business meeting between now and then. We've got decisions to make. Not all now, but the, the, the world has forever changed. I'm sure of it. The playbook will need to adapt. The gospel still the gospel. We'll still need to be faithful. But every now and then we need to look at our Bibles and see what they say as to what we're supposed to do here and now. The Bible gets to say how the church does what God has called it to. Hard thing about change is uh, when it's not our idea. COVID was none of our ideas, right? So that was painful change. Sometimes the worst change is when we decide as a group to change things, even if they're small things, because we're not all going to look at it the same way. It's the same in, in the car. All right, where are we going to eat tonight? We're not going to find a consensus, maybe every now and then, but we're not going to stop at every last window on the way home to customize it for every person in the van either, because that's not going to work. And the Lord, thankfully, gives us authority to try to push those things through. And thankfully, it's not in men or women. It's in the words of God given to us in a book. We just got to figure it out, plug it in, and then stand in awe that he's still in the business of changing lives. Just like that crippled man standing on his feet. Peter and John had been with Jesus. Peter had walked on water. John had seen miracles, but Jesus was gone. And they might worry, is this going to work? He's gone. Will this check cash? That's why they took that crippled man with him, I think, everywhere they went. Exhibit A, 
He's still in the business of changing lives. We need more healed, crippled people around here. And then other crippled people around town will want to know about it. I think that's enough for a meal. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for the boldness of these men who after being bold were threatened and then went home and asked for more boldness. Lord, I think we're just now beginning to feel pushback. I don't think we're being threatened. But after pushback comes threats. And then after threats may come harm. That may take weeks. That may take decades or centuries. Lord, erase that from our brains and replace it with a desire for boldness to preach no matter what. To whoever will listen. Thank you for Acts. Thank you for Wake Chapel. Thank you for our time together on this Lord's Day. We ask this in your name. Amen.